The Gospel of John is unique among the four Gospels in your Bible. It's my favorite. Matthew writes to the Jews to prove to them that Jesus is their Messiah. And Mark writes to the Romans to show them that Jesus is the servant who suffered. Luke writes to the Greeks to show them that Jesus is the perfect man. Matthew starts with a genealogy. Mark and Luke, they begin with the ministry of John the Baptist. But John writes 60 years later, he's some 60 years after the birth of the New Testament church and a full three decades after Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so his gospel starts differently. John writes at the end of a century that's quite a bit like ours. Culture is confused and people are perplexed and truth is being trampled and divine destiny is about ready to be decided. Will the church stay firm and stand strong or will they waver and fade into oblivion? And that's the context when this last remaining elder of his generation picks up his pen one final time and he starts to anchor that current generation to a foundational truth that had bound the apostolics together since day one. And his gospel starts like this. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He means for you to notice a little bit of an echo. He's echoing the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And in case you miss his obvious connection there, in case you miss his obvious implication that the Jesus that he walked with and the Jesus that he talked with and the Jesus that he knew, in case you miss it there that he's saying Jesus was the God who created the earth, he doesn't leave you hanging He says this in verse 14, and the word was made flesh and he came and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the father and this Jesus that we knew and walked with and talked with, he was full of grace and he was full of truth. And that powerful revelation of Jesus' identity, that's powerful to John. It's important to John. It's foundational, crucial, core truth. It's not just an academic or theological little construct. It is burned in his brain. It is seared in his spirit. John's memory is so keen, more than 60 years after the events, that he still remembers little details in his gospel. He still remembers the very hour he met Jesus. It was 4 p.m. in the afternoon. He vividly recalls little details that most people would forget or overlook. There were six water pots at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. The Samaritan woman left her water pot and went running into town from the well to share her testimony. He remembers that an anonymous cripple at the pool of Bethesda, he remembers this little detail. That man had been sick for 38 years. And he remembers that the high priest's servant, his buddy Peter, he cut off that man's ear. But he remembers something that nobody else records. His name was Malchus. John noticed that. And John must have been handling some of the finances of the fishing business for his father Zebedee because... There was enough of an accountant up in his brain that he remembered what the feeding of the 5,000 would have cost if Jesus hadn't done the miracle and they would have had to pay for it. It would have cost 200 penny worth of bread. John remembers all of this like it was yesterday. 
Because John wasn't just somebody who heard about Jesus or heard a sermon about Jesus or went to a church that talked about Jesus. John had walked with Jesus. He was an eyewitness of his majesty. First John, a book that he wrote after the gospel, says this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, and we saw it with our own eyes, and we looked upon him, and our hands handled. I got to touch Jesus, who was the word of life. For that life was manifested, and we have seen it. And we didn't make this up, and it's not science fiction. It's core truth. We bear witness, and we show unto you that, the, that eternal life, which was with the Father, but then the Father did something incredible. He came to earth, and that life was manifested unto us in the person of Jesus. John's gospel is amazing. It's, it's my favorite and I'm not picking sides. If you like one of the others better, that's great. But 90% of John's gospel is unique only to John. There are no parables in John. He doesn't tell one. But there are many conversations in the gospel of John. Jesus talks with Nicodemus and with the Samaritan woman and with Mary and Martha and Peter and many others. One-on-one -on -one conversations. And John's very selective even about the miracles he records. He does record some of Jesus' miracles, but not all of them. And some of them are unique only to John. Only in John's gospel do we hear about the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And every miracle John records, somehow he works it around and he manipulates the narrative as far as how he orders it so that he can put a miracle and then immediately teach us something from the words of Jesus himself. Jesus opens blind eyes and then... Jesus' statement is, I am the light of the world. John does that all the time. It's, it's amazing. And that's why John is the only gospel writer among the four who records what we call the I am statements of, of Jesus. They're amazing. Every time Jesus makes this statement, he's reaching back to a burning bush and taking the name that God revealed to Moses, I am that I am, and Jesus is using it in reference to himself. It's amazing. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the true vine. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. As John puts his pen on his paper, 60 years after Jesus' ministry, six decades after the day of Pentecost, He's keenly aware as he begins to write his gospel that he's the only original voice left. Matthew and Mark and Luke are gone. They wrote their gospels 30 years previous. James and Jude, the Lord's brothers, they're gone as well. His friend Peter is gone, crucified head downward at his own request because Peter didn't feel worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord. And the prolific pen of the apostle Paul has been silenced forever when that great man and that phenomenal missionary was beheaded by the cruel, despotic emperor named Nero. So one by one, ruthless persecution and the relentless march of time have taken all of John's friends and he's the last surviving elder of the first century church. All of those martyrdoms are now 30 years in the past. And John has now served as the sole surviving elder of the entire first century for many years. He's the only original voice left who can repeat verbatim what he heard Jesus say with his own ears. He's the only firsthand witness left 
who can testify to what he saw and what he felt as he followed Jesus for three and a half years. And that's why John's gospel, this is one of the reasons it's my favorite. He goes out of the way to capture little details that many people would think are unimportant and many people would have forgotten entirely. But John is like an artist. And in his gospel, he's painting this picture of Jesus that will last throughout the ages. John doesn't write everything that Jesus said. He doesn't write everything that Jesus did. In fact, he's very selective. He has a specific purpose as he weaves together each chosen statement and miracle and event that he recounts from Jesus' ministry. See, John's on a mission for us. He wants the church to know how to find life through the name of Jesus Christ. This is how he comes to a close at his gospel. This is the second to last chapter, John 20. Many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples. They're not written in this book. I didn't write those down. I picked some signs. I picked some miracles. I picked some sermons. I picked some events. I was very selective. I was very intentional. These things are written. Why? So that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life through his name. I think there's a few people in this room that you've encountered Jesus and believed in him and you found life through the son of God and you have life in his name today and that's something to celebrate not just on Sunday morning but every day of the week. John is a brilliant, brilliant author and he loves to describe each event so vividly that his readers can imagine as if they were standing there on the street in Jerusalem, or on the road near Nazareth, or standing at the shore of the Sea of Galilee, right in the middle of Jesus' ministry. He paints such a vivid picture. And that's why John does this in his gospel, and I love this. It's just good writing. He often sets the scene with what you might call a throwaway statement, just a casual observation about the time of day or even about the weather. He remembers it like it's yesterday. It's burned into his brain. And he wants us to remember it, even though we weren't actually there. He wants us to be able to feel what he felt. And more importantly, to know what he knew. That Jesus is the true and only living God who came to earth in a body of flesh. And I think it's even more than that. John knew Jesus' identity. And he had observed something over that three and a half years that he walked with Jesus. He had observed that even the natural elements of this planet obeyed Jesus when he spoke. Even the weather, even the, 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 the hours of the day, everything obeyed Jesus when he spoke. So I think John was absolutely fascinated with how the natural and the spiritual worlds, they seemed to converge whenever Jesus was around. Can I tell you that still happens today? That we came in our automobiles, we arrived, we walked in physical doors, we sat down on physical pews, we're in a physical building, but there's something about this Jesus that when he shows up, the natural world and the spiritual world, they just begin to converge. And you can get a miracle sitting in a physical building on a physical Sunday in a physical seat, but the supernatural God that we've worshiped here this morning, he can touch your life in ways that are supernatural. It's amazing. They observed this in the middle of a storm. Matthew 8, verse 27. The men marveled and they said, 
What manner of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? The natural elements of this world, they even have to bow to Jesus. And so 60 years after the fact, 60 years after these events, John's memory is still razor sharp. He's a 90-something-year-old man, but he remembers it with such vivid detail. It's amazing. John 9, verse 14. And it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened that blind man's eyes. John remembered that it was on the Sabbath that Jesus opened the eyes of a man who hadn't just had an accident, he'd been born blind. It was a congenital defect. And Jesus put clay on his eyes, a perfect picture of how man was created in the beginning. And Jesus sent him to the pool of Siloam to wash. And John remembers it all to a T 60 years later. The disciples wanted to know who sinned, Jesus, that this man was born blind. The neighbors argued over whether this was a case of mistaken identity. I don't think this is the same guy. Even the man's own parents, they didn't want to admit to the miracle lest they get in trouble with all the religious people. He's of age, you ask him about it. And of course, the Pharisees, they pronounced that miracle invalid because it happened on the Sabbath. And therefore, it didn't fit in with their religious tradition. But let me tell you something. Jesus broke all their religious rules to get to a man who was in need and he jumped over some fences and he stepped out of some boxes and he healed that man even though you could have argued he didn't deserve it. Let me tell you, Jesus still does stuff like that all the time. He will trample down walls to get to you. He'll find you in the valley. He'll find you in the darkness. He'll find you in your worst time and he'll do a miracle for you. Look at this, John 4, 52. Then inquired he of them the hour when he began to amend, when that boy began to get well. And they said unto him, to this nobleman, oh, it was yesterday at the seventh hour. How exact is that? 60 years later. It was yesterday at the seventh hour that the fever left him. And the father of that boy knew that all of a sudden, he, he understood something. It was at the very same hour in which Jesus had said to him, your son lives, and that man believed, and his whole house. That was the nobleman from Capernaum. His son was at the point of death. He begged Jesus, please come home with me. And the master said something that was probably very disappointing. Just go your way, your son lives. It was probably the hardest thing that desperate dad ever did in his whole life was to turn away from the miracle worker and to walk home alone and a desperate dad heads back to his desperately sick son without Jesus by his side. And then it got worse because he sees his servants in the distance rushing to meet him. And you know what you would think. Oh no, the worst has happened. My boy is gone. It's all over. And the servants come rushing toward him and his heart just shatters inside. He knew they were bringing him news that he didn't want to hear. Thoughts of mourning and grieving and funerals started to flood through his mind. But then as the servants got closer, he notices they're not crying. They're laughing. And they shout to him across the distance, your son lives exactly what Jesus said to him at the same moment the day before.
And when they compared stories, suddenly they realized, oh yeah, it was yesterday at the seventh hour, the very minute Jesus spoke, that's the very minute your boy was miraculously healed. Jesus didn't have to go to your house and physically lay a hand on him. No, he just spoke the word and his word was enough to do the miracle even at a distance. All that man had to go on was a word from Jesus. No feeling, no evidence, no good report. But let me tell you, the word from Jesus was enough to do the work. So if you're in a situation and you got no feeling and you got no good report and you got no evidence to go on, you can still stand strong on the word of God. Jesus is still a miracle worker. 60 years later, John can't forget the little details that most of us would have forgotten. John 4 verse 6. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well. Watch. And it was about the sixth hour. Since the Jewish day begins at, in the evening before, the night begins at 6 p.m. and the day begins at 6 a.m., the sixth hour of the day is high noon. John records the story of a woman who has several strikes against her. Number one, she's a Samaritan. Number two, she's a woman with a disreputable past. She has been used by men and abused by her neighbors and even looked down on by Jesus' own disciples. But let me tell you, she wasn't looked down on by Jesus. He literally took an intentional detour through Samaria. And then he sends his disciples away to the city to buy meat. And then Jesus himself, God manifest in flesh, sits down on the side of a well in Sychar, a lonely well at high noon, at 12 o'clock, about the sixth hour. It's the hottest part of the day. Nobody comes to the well to draw water at high noon, except this woman, this lonely, broken woman, who always comes at noon in the heat of the day, just so she can avoid the prying eyes and the gossiping tongues of all the other women in her village. You hear me, Jesus doesn't care about any of that. Her brokenness and her dysfunction and her guilt and her shame do not disqualify her. And they don't stop Jesus from reaching out to her. And Jesus, the Son of God, transforms her life through one divinely appointed appointment. At high noon, he's sitting there on the well when she comes, waiting on her to get there about the sixth hour. Jesus comes to find her in her hurt at the exact moment that everybody else has walked away. If everybody else has walked out on you, if everybody else has slammed the door in your face, if everybody else has looked down on you and misused you and abused you and kind of ignored you, let me tell you, Jesus has an appointment with you. He scheduled it from before the time you were ever born. He scheduled you to be in his presence before you ever had breath in your body. And Jesus would like to do the same thing for you. John 18, verse 28. Then led they Jesus from Caiaphas unto the hall of judgment. And it was early. That's John. And they themselves went not into the judgment hall lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. John spends the last half of his gospel recounting just the last week of Jesus' life. He spends five chapters 
just telling us about the conversation that Jesus had with his disciples at the Last Supper. He loves the detail of it. He wants us to remember it, even though we weren't there with him. Now, this is the point in John 18 where public perception turns against the master. And sinister forces are at work trying to silence Jesus' voice forever. John makes note. It was early when Jesus was brought from the house of Caiaphas the high priest to Pilate's judgment hall. He didn't just say that casually. He's making a statement. He wants us to notice. It was early. What do you mean, John? The Jewish Sanhedrin was not legally allowed to meet at night. And yet they were so filled with hate toward Jesus that they met all through the night trying to scheme to crucify him. In Jesus' case, they've made an exception to their own law. Since his arrest in Gethsemane the evening before, Jesus has been dragged from one judge to another all night long in a cruel mockery of justice. It had everything wrong about it. Political maneuvering and sham trials and false witnesses and hateful jurors and a predetermined sentence of death. Jesus is physically exhausted by morning and it looks like all hope is lost and John simply can't take it. He cries out against the injustice of it all when he said, it was early. They plotted all night long against my master. John chapter 6, verse 17. This is amazing to me. I, I, I hope you're tolerating it well because I'm fascinated. I could go all day, but I won't. And they entered into a ship and they went over the sea toward Capernaum. Look at this. And it was now dark and Jesus was not come to them. You ever been in a dark place? <laughs> a time when you felt like Jesus was distant and the storm that you were in was about ready to sink you? Well, the disciples had that experience too. They were in a little small fishing vessel out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And when they least expected it, the tempestuous winds and the treacherous waves threatened to capsize their little boat. And John was right in the middle of that fearful moment. And he records these words. And it was now dark. And Jesus was not come to them. Where is Jesus when we need him? I don't know if you've ever felt like that. If you ever have, please remember that it was at that precise moment in the darkest part of their storm that Jesus came to them walking on the water because he controlled even the elements of nature and he saved them. John 20 verse one. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early. Here it is again. When it was yet dark, it's like the weather and the elements set the mood for what John is saying. She came to the sepulcher and she saw the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Mary Magdalene had a similar experience to the disciples after the crucifixion and the burial of Jesus. She came to the tomb when it was yet dark. She wasn't expecting anything except more darkness, more pain, more hurt, more grief, more loss. Even the appearance of two angels couldn't stop her tears. And she even looks right at Jesus and doesn't even recognize him. That's how dark it was in her life at that moment. But when Jesus spoke her name and said, Mary, suddenly she realized 
Jesus is with me. Even in my darkest moment when it looks like all hope is gone. (laughs) John 10 verse 22. And it was at Jerusalem, the Feast of Dedication. And it was winter. Boy, we feel your pain this week, John. John is the ultimate artist and author. He loves to paint the picture and put us in it. It was back when the persecution against Jesus was really starting to ramp up, when people were accusing Jesus of having a devil and demanding that he prove himself and even attempting to stone him. And that's when John simply says, and it was winter. Even the elements of the world seemed to be sympathetic with their creator. It's amazing, and John does it so well. His gospel is beautiful and powerful. But in my opinion, the two most memorable scenes involve two of Jesus' own disciples. And John is nearby, and he's observing every action. He's hanging on every word. He's noticing every subtle nuance of the events that will be burned forever in his brain. 60 years later, as an old man, he still remembers every moment in vivid detail. It's the night of the Passover, and Jesus has just finished washing the disciples' feet. He's shown them love, and he's taught them submission in one beautiful moment of service. But then Jesus shocked them all when he said, one of you is going to betray me. And instantly, everybody in that room was suspicious of everybody else in that room. And every disciple was even doubtful of their own dedication. Is it I? Is it me, Jesus? Now, John is seated closest to Jesus at that table. And across the table, his buddy Peter motions to him, gives him the nod, and indicates to him, you should ask Jesus who it is. And so John does. He asks the question nobody else has dared to ask. Lord, who is it? And you can imagine John's shock when Jesus indicates Judas, and then Judas abruptly gets up and leaves the room and goes out into the night. And John simply records it this way. He then, having received the sop, the bread, he went immediately out, and it was night. It's the evening of the Passover. Of course, it's night. But John feels compelled to note it Because Judas has just walked away from Jesus. He has just betrayed the master. He's just sold out to Satan. And he has eternally doomed himself. It is awful. It's evil. It's final. And it's terrifying. There is no decision so fatal, so harmful, or so eternal as turning your back on Jesus and walking out on him. John simply says, and it was night. It was at that same supper that John's friend Peter decides that if Judas is going that way, I'm going the opposite way. If Judas is going to betray Jesus, then Peter's going to defend Jesus. If Judas is going to walk away, then Peter is going to follow closely. If Judas is going to fail, 
Peter's going to succeed. If Judas is leaving, Peter's staying. If Judas is going to backslide, then Peter's going to be brave. But unfortunately, when Jesus was betrayed and arrested and taken away, Peter's bravery totally collapsed. The moment he was challenged, he fearfully denied even knowing Jesus. It's a moment of defeat and shame. He has failed miserably. And he knows, I'm no better than Judas. When Jesus is arrested, Peter watches from a distance. He's terrified that he will be taken too. And that's where he gets into trouble, at a distance. That's where his faith is attacked and his witness is challenged at a distance. And John, when he recounts the story 60 years later, he adds one seemingly insignificant detail. John 18. And the servants and officers stood there who had made a fire of coals. Little throwaway statement. For it was cold. And they warmed themselves, and Peter stood with them and warmed himself. For it was cold. The night is cold. And Peter is cold. He doesn't just have cold hands. At this moment, he has a cold heart. He has failed Jesus and failed himself and failed everyone else at the worst possible moment. How could Jesus ever forgive him? And how could he ever forgive himself? But you know this story. Peter did make a comeback. Peter did get restored. Peter did get used by God for the glory of God's kingdom. You know why? Because while Peter had accidentally wandered, he hadn't intentionally walked away. Because with Jesus, failure doesn't have to be fatal. You see, Peter was different than Judas. In Peter's heart, it wasn't night. It was just cold. And John made sure that in his beautiful artistic way of writing, he made sure to weave that little message into his gospel. There's a huge difference, folks, between a permanent deny, a temporary denier and a permanent betrayal. There's a big difference between somebody that falls flat on their face and in a moment of fear, in a moment of temptation, they deny their connection with Jesus. There's a big difference between a temporary denier and a permanent betrayer. There's a world of difference between Peter and Judas. And I came to this service this morning, really felt this for a long time. I've been kind of looking at this one and writing stuff down for this one for a long time. And today was the day I got the green light for it. If your heart is cold, that's not the end of your story. If it's cold today in your life, and you, you, you watch other people worship God and you feel something around you, and, but you know that your heart is cold. Could I just tell you? And it was cold is different than and it was night. You haven't slammed the door. 
You haven't walked away. You haven't said goodbye to Jesus or his church. You're just in a season when you feel cold. And cold is okay as long as you turn back to Jesus and let him forgive you. Cold is not permanent. Cold is not a final failure. Cold is just a temporary situation. Ryan, if you come back and just help me. Right now, I'd like this great church to just offer up a prayer to God, and we're going to pray together in just a moment. I didn't come here to deliver to you a little sermon. I hope something's meant something to you, but I came here to deliver a message to somebody today. Because in the middle of all the worship and all the prayer and all the praise and all the music, you just feel like something in you is just so cold. You match the weather outside. It's just not there. All it takes is a turn. And Jesus is right there waiting to forgive and to welcome and to love and to heal and to help. Church, would you just lift up your hands and your voice right now? Would you begin to pray? This service this morning is somebody's date with destiny. It's their date with Jesus. It's their date with healing. It's their date with restoration. It's their date with renewal. Oh, I need your voice, church. I don't need a little silent prayer right now. I need a prayer that just kind of lights a fire that somebody can get warm at. I need a prayer that just kind of ignites something that somebody can be restored by. I'm waiting on my intercessors. I'm waiting on my prayer warriors. I'm waiting on the saints of God to just reach out to Jesus right now for somebody that's in this room. Jesus is waiting. He's ready. He's got an appointment with you today. He's not mad at you. He's not frustrated with you. He's not walked away from you. He's not left you. He's there. He's just waiting. Lord Jesus, right now, I thank you, God, for the power and the beauty of your word. And I thank you for the way John put this story together so we could notice these little details. And I thank you, God, for these kind folks that have listened to me talk this morning. But God, my little talk and a little sermon, a little message, that doesn't fix anything. But when your presence walks into a room and the supernatural and the natural, they intersect. Jesus, you can do anything for anybody. So Lord God, this morning I ask you to heal. I ask you to restore. I ask you to touch. I ask you to do what you do best. I ask you to just love on people today. Let them feel your love. Know your forgiveness. Let them experience your healing. Let them experience salvation today. I pray it in the name that John wrote about, in the name that John exalted, in the name that he loved. I pray it in your name, in the name that I love too, in Jesus' name. 
Church, would you stand to your feet right now all over this building? Would you let your hands just continue to ascend right now? And would you break through the coldness that the devil would like to put on everybody? Would you push through the coldness that the world would try to just kind of ensnare you with? Would you push through that and let the fire of God's spirit just begin to burn? Because here's what I know about fire. It catches. It moves from vessel to vessel. It moves from heart to heart. It moves from life to life and praise to praise. It moves from prayer to prayer. That fire of the Holy Ghost that's in here, it can do anything. It can change any situation. It can restore anybody. I don't care who you are or what you've done. The fire of the Holy Spirit can change your life. Jesus isn't here to condemn you. Jesus is here to love you and restore you today. <laughs> oh my. I know exactly what I felt for this service. I knew exactly that there would be people here that needed to hear something like this today. And I know better than that. I know exactly what Jesus will do if you'll take a step toward him. He'll run toward you. Now we're going to make it easy for everybody because I'm going to ask this great church that loves people and loves God and loves the altar. I'm going to ask us as a group to just step out of where we're standing and come to the front. We're going to pray together. So everybody's welcome. So if you're cold, we're not out to try to expose your issue. We're not trying to expose your failure. We're not trying to expose all your heartache. We just want you to come so we can pray together. But let me tell you what's going to happen around this altar this morning. God is going to reignite a fire in somebody where it's grown so cold. God is going to reignite a blaze in somebody's heart where it just feels like you're disconnected. Jesus wants to do that for you this morning. Oh, thank you, God. Thank you, God. Now, the most important tool you've got right now is your voice. I'm not even asking you to scream or shout out loud. I'm just asking you to use your voice to talk to Jesus. Nobody is paying attention to your prayer. They're praying their own prayer right now. But would you pray to Jesus and say, God, I ask you to forgive me. God, I ask you to come near me. God, I'm tired of the failure. I'm tired of the sin. I'm tired of the darkness. I'm tired of the sickness. I'm tired of the trial. Jesus, I'm just tired of being cold inside. Set me a fire. Let me have your joy. Let me have your peace. Ryan, we're good for just a sec because right now we just need to concentrate on praying. I need every Holy Ghost filled child of God. Some of you, this message hit you square between the eyes. That's okay. That's how the word works. Jesus isn't here to condemn you or shut you down or push you out. Jesus is here to welcome you in and he's here to restore what the devil tried to take from you. So right now, I need everybody that knows how to pray to pray out loud. I need everybody that knows how to touch God. Even if you've struggled recently, I need you to lead the way because somebody, this is their moment to meet up with Jesus. Jesus. Somebody, this is their moment to be restored. Somebody, this is their moment to have the fire of God blaze brightly in your heart one more time. 
Yes, Jesus. Yes, God. I worship you, Jesus. I worship you, Jesus. I worship you, Jesus. I worship you, Jesus. This may be the most important action that we take this morning. When we connect with somebody else and we pray with them and for them. Would you do that right now? All of you men, find another man that you can just put your hand on his shoulder and just pray together. Pray as men together. All of you ladies, find some lady. Husbands and wives, family members, friends, that's fine. Find somebody to pray with right now. You don't understand what's going on here. If you did, you'd push a little bit. You don't understand what's going on here in somebody's heart. If you did, you'd crank up the intensity just a little bit. Somebody, this is their morning to reconnect with God. Somebody, this is their morning to come back from a long season of winter. Somebody, this is their morning to come into the, out of the cold and be near the fire of God's love. Somebody, it's your morning. Don't stop praying until you feel something break. Don't stop praying until you feel something change. Don't stop praying until you feel that response in your own heart. It's time to come back. It's time to get close. It's time to light yourself on fire for God. It's time. God, I'm tired of being cold. God, I'm tired of being worn out. God, I'm tired of being sick. God, I'm tired of feeling like my whole life is under attack. God, I'm tired of feeling like my emotions are collapsing all around me. Jesus, I need to come in from this cold state. I need the fire of your spirit. I need you, Jesus. I need you, Jesus. I need you, Jesus. Yes. 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 So darababa bo shekiamaha. Mandotora keriabo shesaba. I thank you, Jesus. I thank you, Jesus. Now here's how you're going to know. In just a minute, we're just going to start to worship God together. If it's like a well that springs up in you, that's a good thing. If it still feels like it's frozen over, then before you praise, just pray a little more. Say, Jesus, this isn't the way I want to be. This isn't how I want to feel. This isn't how I want my life to be. I am so tired. 
tired of being cold. And you pray just like that. You be honest with God. And then I need you to do something. And God would tell you the same thing if he was standing here in flesh. He would tell you, you praise your way through it. Like I told Joshua when he was facing an impenetrable city and a lot of enemies. You praise me first and then I'll give you the victory. Sometimes you just got to make up your mind. I'm going to worship my way into feeling. I'm not going to feel my way into worshiping. We almost got it right there. We were right on the edge. I said, devil, hear me well. I am not going to sit around waiting to feel my way into worship. I'm going to worship my way into feeling. I'm going to worship even though it still feels a little frosty and cold in my life. I'm going to worship until the fire of the Holy Ghost hits me. Now we've had our average typical altar response, but listen to me, average typical altar response is not what some very wonderful people need this morning. What some very wonderful, kind, good-hearted people need this morning is they need freedom, they need liberty, they need the fire of the Holy Ghost to touch them. So I'm asking this church one more time if you would begin to worship your way into the presence of God. If you don't feel it yet, that's okay. Pray a little. Say, God help me. Say, Jesus forgive me. Say, Jesus set your fire in my spirit and then go back to worshiping. There is a freedom in the worship this morning. There is a liberty in the worship this morning. There is healing in the worship this morning. There is deliverance in the worship this morning. There's fire in the worship this morning that will burn out that coldness, that will burn out that lethargy, that will burn out that depression, that will burn out that darkness. Yes, God. Yes, God. I worship you God we have two minutes before our normal dismissal time we're not late this morning just one more time I'm only going to ask you once more if you'd find somebody to pray with and now that you've worshipped your way into the presence of God I want you to just grab somebody else and worship God with them worship God beside them worship God with them there's freedom in that worship there's fire in that worship there's deliverance and healing there's joy and peace in that worship today I am so sick and tired of being sick and tired. I am so tired of being cold. I am so tired of feeling apathetic and disconnected. God, today's my day. I'm going to light that fire again. Yes, yes. Thank you, Jesus. 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 To the one 
who always welcomes us back, to the one who always forgives us, to the one who always runs to us. Would you give Jesus a great thanks at the end of service this morning? He's always there. He's always faithful. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Ha, ha, ha.